Hello and welcome once again to Hidden Treasures Podcast, where we uh, take a deep dive into some of the um, beautiful gems and treasures that are hidden in scripture. Uh, today I'm joined again by Subdeacon David, so welcome to be once back. again. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the fifth Eothenon, that's the fifth resurrectional gospel that's read at Orthros, um, which is the passage from Luke chapter 24, verses 12 through 35, the road to Emmaus passage. At that time, <clears throat> Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home wondering at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said unto them, What is this conversation which you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since this happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. And they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into it this glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He appeared to be going further, but they constrained him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven gathered together, and those who were with them, who said, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. This passage, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> sorry. This passage has kind of two sections to it. It begins with a very short a short image of Peter, and then it transitions to the longer passage, or the longer part of this passage, that talks about the two disciples on the road, Cleopas and an unnamed individual, um, whom uh, some of the fathers say is St. Luke, and that he didn't want to put his name in the passage itself because they don't really come out that great. Mm-hmm. Um so the first passage has Peter running to the tomb and uh, finding the linen cloths there lying by themselves. Jesus' body isn't there. And then he returns home wondering at what had happened. Then it transitions to the second story uh, where the two, the two disciples are on the road going to Emmaus, which it says is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they're talking and discussing. After that, Jesus joins them, and they don't recognize him. Jesus kind of pretends not to know what's going on and kind of inquires them, well, why are you guys so sad? What's happening? And they 
answer in a way that seems a little maybe haughty. Are you the only one of all the people here that don't know what's what's happening? And then they give a brief summary of all that had happened. Then Jesus rebukes them and ends up explaining to them the scriptures. He stays with them for dinner, and then he breaks the bread with them, and then he disappears. They return back to Jerusalem and find out that Christ has appeared to Simon, and it ends with this, and he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. So I guess the first interesting thing here is why does the gospel passage include this very short snippet about Peter first and then transition into the longer passage about the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And I think they're connected by this not knowing what's going on. The disciples on the road to Emmaus don't really know what's happening and Peter doesn't don't really doesn't really know what's happening even though Peter is going to the tomb looking in the tomb, the tomb is empty, and all there are are linen cloths. There's really not much else that could have happened other than Christ resurrecting from the dead. Certainly in antiquity, and we know this from Egypt, it's not unusual for tombs to be robbed, for people to break into tombs. But Mm -hmm. of course, this tomb was guarded. Mm. And there wasn't anything in the tomb to take. Stealing a body doesn't really serve any purpose, particularly if you're leaving the only things that may have been of use, which are the linen cloths. So this, the fact that the linen cloths are still there are kind of a, a sign that the resurrection has indeed happened, because otherwise they would be gone as well. Yeah. I think it was also kind of fascinating to, to note the element of like sheer fear that's kind of motivating a lot of what's happening here. The, the disciples are very afraid of what is about to happen to them because uh, the reality that Christ is resurrected, uh, while we read it as like, oh, beautiful, our Savior is resurrected. He is truly uh, the Son of God. He is truly God himself who has defeated Hades. Um, but for the disciples, they had already recognized that this was truly God before them. Uh, for them, it was now a fearful moment where the reality that Christ was God um, has to has to hit. Everybody is going to see that Christ fully resurrected with his body. And that's going to be something that the disciples will have to pay for as we see in their lives. Actually, St. Augustine kind of talks about that a little bit, that very... <clears throat> Uh, that fearfulness, but also that it's a little surprising for us reading these passages that the disciples don't grasp what's happening a little bit faster. Mm -hmm. Um, He says, um, after all, when he had been with them before the Passion, he had foretold everything that he was going to suffer, to die, and to rise again on the third day. He had foretold it all. But his death had erased it from their memories. They were so shattered when they saw him hanging on the tree that they forgot about his teaching. So mm-hmm. that this, the sort of the magnitude of the crucifixion drives this from their mind, everything that he had been preparing them for, and that now he has to sort of re-prepare them for the resurrection slowly. Uh, we've talked about before how he's appearing to small groups and then two on the road and then and then finally he appears to all 11 together at table mm-hmm. um, Ephraim the Syrian actually has a very interesting take on the linen cloths left in the tomb uh, he says 
If he left his clothes behind in the tomb, it was so that Adam could enter into paradise without clothing, mm. just as he had been before he had sinned. Wow. So the Christ leaves the linen clothing there, and in in that sense he becomes like Adam was before, before he had sinned without clothing. Yeah. Um, so again, at Christ becomes a new Adam and sets right that which had been that had gone astray in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, especially the way uh, we highlight that the the only thing that was in the tomb were the linen cloths. So, in reality, it really is saying that it's ushering in kind of the the new man, the way that we uh, turn away from sin and try to embrace the new man. Absolutely. Um, he also says, For just as the Lord rose into glory without clothes, so we also will rise with our works and not with our clothes. So there's a lot of sort of allegorical understanding going on here, or maybe mm. anagogical understanding of why are these linen clothes left there. There's the, the maybe the literal reason of, well, Christ rose and he doesn't really need the burial clause anymore, but then this anagogical understanding that the clothes are there as a, restoration of Adam and also a sign for us that it's not with our worldly possessions or anything like that that we enter paradise but with our with our works not our clothes yeah then we have this transition from the story about Peter to the two of them going to a village named Emmaus um, Emmaus it says uh, is about seven miles from Jerusalem of course seven is a very important number and um, the Venerable Bede actually talks about this number seven and why not only is the village of Emmaus literally seven miles from Jerusalem, but they're, they're walking there. And since they haven't grasped the reality of the resurrection, he says, they have completed also the seventh mile, for they doubted not that he rested in the grave. But of the eighth mile, they had only accomplished half. For the glory of his already triumphant resurrection, they did not believe perfectly. Mm. So again, we have this sort of literal understanding, but also a more um, allegorical or anagogical understanding of, of the number seven here. Yeah. I think it's actually interesting to highlight now how uh, we've now read from two fathers who kind of look at the disciples as... Um, having forgotten what they're supposed to know on one hand, and on the other hand, doing something imperfectly. Um, so the the women really here become the ones who are shepherding this whole message of the resurrection. They are the ones who are having the bravery uh, to bring that message of the resurrection, to be uh, the disciples who who God needed uh, to, to distribute that message, Who when, when the disciples themselves were only concerned with their own fears. And again, just like we saw with with Adam being naked in paradise and then clothed after a sin, and then Christ returns that to its original state by leaving the linen cloths in the tomb, um, the fathers talk about Mary Magdalene being the first person to see him resurrected because sin comes into the world through Eve, a woman, and then the first person to see that sin has been overcome mm -hmm. is also a woman. So yeah. there's this almost what we would call in literature an intertextual connection here mm -hmm. between the resurrection and, 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 and Genesis, because sometimes I like to think of this whole story of creation almost as God, 
as an author, right? And if an author, then the best author, because there's all these beautiful connections and, and going on between um, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and yeah, absolutely. the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, so they are mourning, and they're talking about everything that had happened. And Jesus drew near, draws near to them, and um, they don't recognize him initially. And he asks them about what's going on, and they're very sad about, about everything. Um, so are we to believe that Jesus is like a phantom here? Why, why are they unable to recognize him? They spent so much time with him. Well, Jesus isn't really recognized most of the time when he appears after his resurrection. Mm. And um, I think in the last passage we discussed, I forget which church father, but um, saying that this isn't the fact that he has changed his face or changed his form in the sense that he looks different, but that because he is now resurrected and in his his perfected body, that he is um, has this change of morphe, the same thing that sort of he undergoes when he has the, the transfiguration. Cyril of Alexandria talks a little bit about the two disciples and their their lack of understanding of what's going on, their sadness at all of this, saying they talked about Christ regarding him as no longer living but mourning him as dead. So they recognize his death, but they don't yet recognize his resurrection, which is interesting because, of course, Christ is recognized by his disciples as the Messiah when he's um, in his ministry. But he's not the only person running around ancient Israel saying that he's the Messiah. There are hundreds of these groups, hundreds of these mm-hmm. messiahs, all of whom are claiming, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one who's going to get rid of the Romans. That was the big rallying cry. Get rid of the Romans. Um, and Christ is the only one who is saying, well, the Romans don't really matter. That's not the enemy that I'm here to fight. And so, on his death, whenever these rebels would be caught by the Romans, they would be crucified. The two robbers on either side of Christ were probably not robbers in the sense that we normally think of. They're not, they didn't break into someone's home and steal things. They were, they were probably part of one of these zealot communities, um, and they too were, were being crucified. Their death was the moment when their disciples said, okay, obviously he wasn't the one. Mm-hmm. And that's what's happening here when the um, the disciples are saying, we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel. They're not thinking in spiritual terms, which is what they should be thinking. But they're thinking in sort of geopolitical terms, redeem Israel in the sense of kick the Romans out and restart the state of Israel as, as it had been. Yeah. In a way, we kind of do that ourselves in, in this day and age. We replace the role of Christ who who gives us hope and gives us life and we look for hope in like various political figures and whoever it might be and we say oh this person is going to save uh, the orthodox church in this location and you know we we put too much hope on these different uh, worldly powers in the same way that these people were getting deceived by all of these false messiahs uh, that's why um, you know, we know that when, when Christ comes again, so many people uh, won't be able to recognize him also. Same way that the, the, the disciples themselves weren't able to recognize their Lord. Because we often we conflate our sort of political leanings or our political understanding with our 
what should be our real our perspective on life, which should be coming from the spiritual. But of course, we should not put our trust in princes. Of course, yeah. And this is a good example because he is the one to redeem Israel, but not in the way that they're hoping. Um, Saint Augustine says something interesting. Uh, oh, my dear disciples, you had hoped, so now you no longer hope, because they had forgotten everything mm-hmm. that they had that Christ had been saying to them. They'd become just like all the rest of the Jews who'd followed false false messiahs and and had given up hope after they died. Exactly. And then he says, "Look, Christ is alive. Is hope dead in you?" They have to come to this realization that their hope hasn't been falsely placed. He is the one to redeem Israel just not in the way that everyone thought Israel needed to be redeemed, Mm -hmm. but in the way it actually needed to be redeemed. In reality, I mean, that's how our entire lives work. We always think there's something we need for our salvation or, or just even to make our lives better. But in reality, God always knows exactly what we need. And so when we don't get that thing that we thought we needed, it usually means that we didn't need it at all, and it probably would have been negative for our own salvation. It probably would have been negative for for their salvation. had they overthrown the Romans and um, kicked them out, and what would have happened? The, yeah, the imagine Pharisees, if, the Sadducees would have continued as they were. But but imagine if the, the Christians decided to begin their their ministry in the world by being belligerent with the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire is what helped spread Christianity across such a vast swath of land. Um, I don't know. I, I think it would have changed the entire course of history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the Romans weren't very understanding about things like that anyway. <laughs> That's <laughs> certainly true. <laughs> and then, so Christ, as we had just talked about, appears and they don't recognize him. And he, um, he kind of plays a little bit of a trick on them. Ultimately, he says, well, what's, what's going on? Why are you guys so sad? And they react in this very haughty fashion. Well, are you the only one? In all Jerusalem, that doesn't know what's happening, what happened there in these these days. And the Christ says, "Well, what things?" Christ, of course, obviously knows what happened to him <laughs> uh, very recently. But this interplay, they think they know what happened, but they don't. And Christ is able to have sort of a counterpoint. He is pretending he doesn't know what's happening, but he does know they think they know what happened, but they actually don't. Mm-hmm. Um, in If this, again, if we're talking about literature, this is what we like, what we call a chiasm. So it, it forms the Greek letter he, which is kind of an X. So on the one hand, you have the apostles who don't actually know what has happened. Christ, who does, they think they know what has happened, and he is pretending that he hasn't. And through this chiasm, they're Christ is able then to kind of hit them with what actually did by explaining to them in the scriptures everything that needed to happen, that the Christ needed to die. Um, says so it starts with the Moses and all the prophets. This should have been kind of another hint because shortly before the crucifixion, Moses and the prophet Elijah showed up next to him mm-hmm. at the transfiguration. Yeah. So he, he's again showing that the old testament isn't something different isn't um something that's being replaced but it is a being fulfilled in christ that all these these things in moses in the law and the prophets they're pointing to him as 
as the Messiah, as Christ. Uh, Cyril of Alexandria says, In this discourse, the Lord shows that the law was necessary to make ready the way and the ministry of the prophets to prepare people for faith in this marvelous act, so that when the resurrection really took place, those who were troubled at its greatness might remember what was said of old and be induced to believe. So the whole history of, of Israel is a preparation for this moment. And, and still Christ has to, again, prepare people more for the magnitude of what's happening, uh, of the magnitude of the resurrection and of the setting right of human nature and yeah. everything, which is incredible. The other point here is that they were not unaware of the prophecies. Um, he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. So they knew the prophecies, they believed in the prophecies, but they still didn't understand the prophecies until Christ interpreted it to them in the correct fashion. But even after he interpreted it for them, they still forgot it. And he had to reinterpret it for them again. Yeah. yeah. After <laughs> after he'd resurrected, I mean, <laughs> he still had to come back and remind them. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's important for us to know this because uh, it's really easy to feel like, oh, I don't know enough about my faith or I don't, you know, I, I, I just haven't been educated enough or I can't retain enough information about my faith. You know, that's something I actually hear from a lot of people is like, well, there's so much that I'm learning, but I can't actually grasp a lot of it. Well, maybe we're not meant to. <laughs> I mean, even the disciples themselves who were the ones charged with spreading the faith to the whole world, even they forgot. So for us, it's not, you know, that's not to say that we should just, you know, be cavalier about how we, we take our Orthodox education. Uh, but we can't kind of, um, we can't expect everybody to be at the same level. And at the same time, we also can't expect that people shouldn't, know the truth about the church. So uh, we have to uh, keep in mind that uh, the disciples themselves had to learn and relearn and relearn again. That's an excellent point. And I mean, just a couple weeks ago, we were we celebrated the feast day of St. Gregory Palamas. And I think that's an excellent example of that because who was coming at the faith with sort of the, the weight of academia and education it wasn't St. Gregory. Mm-hmm. It was Barlaam, who yeah. doesn't have the word saint in front of his name. Exactly. Um, it's St. Gregory who does, who talks about the experience of God as the necessity for, for salvation, not sort of a logical, rational approach. Because you can approach a philosophical axiom or a theological statement from a, a rational point of view, but if you want to get to know someone... If you want to get to know a person, God is a person, not a philosophical mm-hmm. construct. You have to have an experience of them. I can sit here and kind of logically deduce things about some Deacon David, but I would never actually get to know him. <laughs> it's true. I mean, if we never actually sit down and talk to God and treat him as a person, then we'll ever, never actually know the person of God. Um, it, it's something that's really important here to, to recognize is that even Christ after his resurrection, after he, you know, he's in his, he assumes the perfected form, uh, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't approach the disciples or, or anyone differently. 
you know, there's not something where it's like, oh, he, you know, we, we saw this like light flashing around us and things. No, Christ is still a person. He's still a fully person and he assumed the form of man kind of eternally. Uh, he's taken on who we are. And that's something that can't be changed. It can't be shaken. And he's constantly proving that to the disciples by eating the fish, by letting them touch the marks of the nails and everything. Exactly. Um, I think important, too, here is that the disciples aren't able to interpret the scripture correctly on their own. That a person just approaching the Bible and deciding, I'm going to be understanding all of this uh, on my own is not a good way to form theology Mm -hmm. because that person will go go into error they and they're just not they're not just regular people they were the disciples they were going to be the apostles Mm -hmm. and they they still fell into this error and christ had to teach them had to interpret it for them so i think that's important to keep in mind as well and then the final scene here is that they go together to uh to Emmaus, and they decide, or that Christ is going to continue on, they constrained him to stay with them and to eat with them. And he goes in, he sits at table with them, takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. That should sound familiar, I think, to everyone. Yeah. Right? Here we have the Eucharist. And I think it's important that the Eucharist is where they actually recognize Christ. They're not Mm -hmm. recognizing him in his exposition of Scripture. They're recognizing him in the participation in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And they say as much later on. Then he told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, not necessarily in the exposition of Scripture. Although they kind of should have because they said, we're not our hearts burning within us. Uh, while he opened to us the scriptures. I honestly, I love this whole part of the passage because it reminds me of something I've heard from a lot of people, uh, especially like ethnic people who uh, maybe haven't heard the liturgy in their their mother tongue for many, many years. And then they're at some beautiful liturgy where they get to hear it. And they're they're in tears because uh, for them, it reminds them of that, you know, the liturgies of their childhood, the liturgy that they always grew up with. And that's not to say that the liturgy is any different in any other language, but just how that human element of nostalgia uh, kind of brings so much back to us. And it really makes us, uh, it deepens our connection with people and with things. Uh, and the way Christ comes to them so subtly, as we saw before, but then also manages to, as we read, kind of distribute the Eucharist again. Uh, It brings to us this image that uh, God is not going to always be visibly in front of us the way he was for the disciples, but this Eucharist is still him. And that Eucharist, the, the, the Lord who they couldn't recognize, they recognized in the Eucharist. So likewise, we have to be able to recognize Christ primarily in the Eucharist. Actually, Ambrose of Milan talks a little bit about um, this this burning that they felt in their heart that leads up then to their taking of the Eucharist, that God is love, having wings of burning fire, flies through the breasts and hearts of the saints and consumes whatever is material and earthly, but tests whatever is pure and with its fire makes better whatever it has touched. 
The fire the Lord Jesus sent upon earth, faith shone bright, devotion was enkindled, love was illuminated, and justice was resplendent. With this fire he inflamed the heart of his apostles, as Cleopas bears witness, saying, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So this hearing the scriptures is then, in a sense, almost akin to the Eucharist. It's sort of a Eucharist through the ears, almost, and where God, with his wings of fire, kind of comes into our souls and prepares us for the reception of the Eucharist. If Christ hadn't been on the road expounding on the, the law and the prophets on the scriptures and teaching them what they actually mean, they wouldn't have been ready then to take the Eucharist again and to, to recognize Christ in it. It reminds me of something um, uh, Father Sergius at uh, St. Tikhon's Monastery told us uh, when I was there. He said, um, keep a gospel, keep a, keep the a Bible uh, particularly open to a gospel, uh, open in your bedroom all the time. Uh, because every line in Scripture, every word of Scripture, is like a line in the face of Christ. So that, uh, that the, our understanding of Christ, our whole image of who Christ is, comes from every word of those Scriptures, and that those words of Scripture are Christ himself. Uh, we learned in our homiletics class that some of the fathers say that when the Holy Spirit descended on the Virgin Mary to... Um, and and Christ becomes incarnate in her, that went in through the ears was the idea, because we we are prepared for the Eucharist in, in Scripture, like you said, because that shows us the face of Christ, absolutely. And another interesting thing about this is that because it mirrors or rather, it gives us the foundation for what our liturgy is going to look like. Mm. Right? Our liturgy is in two parts. The first part is the liturgy of the Word, in which we hear Scripture, just like the on the road, um, they were listening to Christ expound on the Scriptures. We also have our homily there. And then we have the liturgy of the Eucharist, where we, having been prepared by the reading of, of Scripture, are finally able to approach the chalice and take the Eucharist. So our the form of liturgy is already in the New Testament in this uh, Road to Emmaus passage. Yeah. So my, my hope is that we can approach the chalice and also recognize Christ and be able to go out into all the world and say, we have, we have seen the Lord and he was made known to us in the breaking of the bread. Thank you very much for joining us again on Hidden Treasures podcast and I look forward to speaking to you again soon.